potential and possibilities, discussions with fascinating people, designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome everybody again to another episode of our show, bringing you a really fascinating guest today uh, involved in creating a better tomorrow on many unique fronts. Uh, we have the honor today uh, of being joined by General Stan McChrystal, uh, founder and chief executive officer of the McChrystal Group, uh, which is an advisory firm uh, focused on uh, delivering innovative leadership solutions, to businesses all around the world, helping them transform, succeed in challenging dynamic environments. Uh, a retired four-star general, Stan is the uh, former commander of U.S. and International Security Assistance Forces Afghanistan, uh, as well as the former commander of our nation's premier military counterterrorism force, JSOC, or Joint Special Operations Command. Uh, he is best known for uh, developing and implementing a, a very comprehensive counterinsurgency strategy in Afghanistan and creating a uh, cohesive counterterrorism organization, ultimately uh, revolutionizing uh, the operating culture of the organization. Uh, throughout his military career, Stan has uh, commanded a number of elite organizations, including the 75th Ranger Regiment after 9-11 until he retired in 2010. He spent more than six years deployed uh, in combat in a variety of leadership positions. In 2009, uh, the President of the United States and the Secretary General of NATO uh, appointed him to be the commander of U.S. Forces Afghanistan and NATO ISAF. Uh, he's commanded uh, over 150,000 troops from 45 allied countries. Uh, Stan, in addition to, uh, to being a senior fellow at Yale's University Jackson Institute for Global Affairs, where he teaches a course on leadership, is an accomplished author uh, with books including My share of the task, uh, team of teams, uh, new rules for engagement in a complex world, uh, myth and reality, parallel lives, and the one that we're going to be getting into a bit today, risk, a user's guide, uh, a passionate advocate for national service and veterans issues. Stan is also the chair of the Board of Service Year Alliance, where he advocates for uh, a future where a year of full-time service, uh, service year is a common expectation, an opportunity for all young Americans. Uh, Stan is a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point and the Naval War College. Uh, he's also completed year-long fellowships at Harvard's uh, JFK School of Government and the Council of Foreign Relations, and we are honored to have him with us today. Uh, General Stan McChrystal, uh, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Thanks for having me. It, it's great to have you, Stan. Um, you know, I, I took a little time to go to the dictionary before the show, and you know, when you look up risk, uh, it gives you a very simple definition, uh, a situation involving exposure to danger. But what I thought was really telling is the first five uh, synonyms uh, that exist there, possibility, chance, probability, 
likelihood and prospect. And I found this really interesting because one of the key points you begin with, and you stress this over and over in the book, is that one of the major flaws, whether it's the military, business, whatever, in managing risk, is the fact that we focus a lot on sort of the chance of bad stuff happening and not enough preparing for when it does. Um, talk a little bit about this principle, if you would, because I think it's very critical in, throughout the book. Yeah, when I grew up with being taught about risk, I always thought it was this intersection of the probability of something happening and the consequences if it does. If I go up on the roof to work, what's the likelihood I'll fall off? And if I do, am I going to get hurt? I've evolved my thinking about that because what I found in life is in most cases, although we'll study potential threats, we'll worry about them, we'll try to seek them out and dodge them. We're not very good at that. And we never will be very good at that. We will, for example, know that a pandemic is coming, but knowing a pandemic is coming and knowing exactly what virus and all that may cause it are two different things. And so in many cases, we fixate on the threat and we hope it's not going to hit us. When reality, there's a lot of things we can do to make ourselves more resilient, stronger, better prepared for when the threat inevitably, inevitably does come and affect us. And so what that means is instead of walking around and leaving our lives to chance and either being lucky or unlucky, we've really got a lot more responsibility, both as individuals and as a society, to do the things that mean when they do come, the impact on us is much less negative than it might be. And, and, and an awesome example of, of this, you, you actually start off the book with where you sort of highlight the uh, the exercise that was known as Crimson Contagion, uh, January to August 2019, where sort of we went through the exercise of this nasty respiratory virus coming from China and killing a lot of people here. And the conclusion there was, um, hmm, we, did, we didn't do a great job with this. We're probably not prepared. <laughs> Talk a little bit about Crimson Contagion, if you would. Yeah, it, it's amazing because most of us think about COVID-19 and we don't think about things before that. But the reality is pandemics aren't new. You know, even in just modern times from the Spanish flu on, pandemics have been either hitting populations or threatening to. And in 2019, the Department of Health and Human Services did this exercise, or actually a series of exercises called Crimson Contagion. And the scenario is painfully familiar. An American traveler goes to China and then flies home. And on the way home, the traveler starts feeling poorly. And so he lands at the airport in Chicago and his son picks him up and takes him to the apartment so the father can go to bed. The son, as planned, then goes out to a rock concert. 500,000 Americans subsequently die. And when they did this series of exercises, they were trying to find out if we had the right equipment. Did we have the right coordination and processes between different parts of our government? The whole community that helps uh, protect a nation from pandemics. And we were the nation in the world determined the most pandemic ready. And yet when they came through the exercise, they found all kinds of shortcomings, 76 pages of shortcomings that needed to be addressed. And almost none of those shortcomings were addressed. And not long after that, COVID-19 arrives. And, and the argument I make to people is COVID-19 was not a particularly powerful virus. Yeah. 
It wasn't 10 feet tall. It wasn't this unbeatable enemy. What it was was something that gave us a fairly predictable challenge. And to a great degree, we dropped the ball. You know, you um, a little bit that you, you introduce um, the reader to uh, the concept that you and um, a Dr. Talbert Slagle from the Yale Institute of Global Health, uh, the concept of the risk immune system. And I I have to say, I find all your bio, because you know, coming out of the, the, the pharmaceutical industry, I find all your biologic analogies really fascinating and, and sort of spot on. But here, you know, you talk about the fact that, you know, we have this immune system normally, it is normally killing off viruses and microbes and all sorts of other stuff. We don't normally think about it. But occasionally when one gets through that either the body hasn't seen before uh, or the body may have seen it, but doesn't know how to deal with it things go awry. Uh, and you know, there's a couple steps here, detection, assess, respond, and learn uh, that we ultimately is the way our, our, our immune system normally works. Talk a little bit about the concept of the risk immune system, especially you know how you go about assessing it, whether you're dealing with the private uh, industry or uh, the military or other organizations that you currently work with. Absolutely. But to go back a little bit, when I was younger, my father and brother served in Vietnam and I was a student of that war. I thought that that's where I'd end up when I went to West Point, but it ended. And then I ended up in Afghanistan and Iraq. In both cases, you had societies that were threatened by insurgencies, much of which came from inside. And so I experienced those firsthand. And then after I left the military, I was teaching at Yale and Dr. Talbert Slagle came to my office. And this is a Yale immunologist. And she, she told me that she thought that the human immune system is much like the problem with counterinsurgency, which I had just come from. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea what she's talking about. And I said, what do you know about counterinsurgency? She says, not much. <laughs> and she looked at me, she says, what do you know about the human immune system? I said, nothing. And she says, well, here's the deal. Every day, it's estimated that we are attacked or exposed to 10,000 microorganisms. And I said, okay, yeah, what's your point? And she says, any one of those could make you sick or kill you if your human immune system isn't working. And I said, okay, Katrina, you got my complete attention now. And yet, I never took my human immune system into my mind. I never thought, I don't get up in the morning and say, human immune system, I hope you, it works today. But I should have, because the analogy was apt. Those countries which are vulnerable to insurgencies, whether internal or external, are those which have weak institutions. The government lacks some legitimacy. The processes aren't strong. The economy may be, economy may be damaged. And so they are more vulnerable. A, a nation which we think of as strong and robust democracy with good institutions doesn't worry much about those things. And so what we find is the same is true of human bodies and organizations mm -hmm. and societies. When your societal immune system, and we call it the risk immune system in the book, when it is its ability to deal with external threats is degraded, suddenly you're vulnerable. And you might not have been vulnerable at all before. And the threat didn't change. What changed was your ability to deal with it. And so what we postulate in the book is, in fact, every individual at a personal level, but maybe more 
relevant, every organization has this risk immune system. And it's involved with 10 risk control factors, things like communication, narrative, leadership, timing, uh, action, the ability to deal with things. And, and we take them for granted until they don't work well. And then suddenly we start to see fissures in our society and inability to deal with them. And as we studied this, we found the analogy was strong. And it also comes back and says, not only is the analogy apt, the responsibility becomes clear. Because while we can't do much about threats, we have agency over how, how healthy our risk immune system is. Therefore, we have responsibility to deal with it. And, and you know, you present those um, those ten dimensions of control, sort of as cogs in this huge machine. They need to operate in sync with one another. Um, we won't get into all of them, but I, I thought we could chat about uh, a few of them here and some of the, the really interesting analogies you use. And, and you, know, you were just mentioning actually two of them, uh, communication and narrative, which I, I thought sort of went hand in hand. Um, in, in sort of the communication front, you give this really interesting history of the tobacco industry about how, you know, something that went from uh, killing us to something that might kill you to something that may give you cancer to make make you sick. Uh, tobacco industry did a good job of sort of uh, <laughs> controlling the communication on that one. And then you talk about narrative and sort of COVID about how, you know, this thing uh, went everywhere. It went from, hey, it's a hoax. Hey, it's a calamity. Hey, it's a, a disaster we got to deal with. Talk a little bit about communication narrative, if you would, Stan. Yeah, it would start with communication. We think of communication as just the ability to transmit information from one place to another. And on a very superficial level, it is. But it really has four tests. The first is, can you physically pass? Is there a way to get your message to the other side, whether it's cell phone or message or face-to-face? -face? And that has to be yes. The second is, will you pass the information? Now that's very, that's more subtle. Am I willing to tell you something either because, and I might not be willing because I don't like you or I don't trust you or any number of reasons. And so that's another thing that stops it. The next is, is the information accurate? Is it correct and accurate and therefore of value? And then the final is, does the receiver have the ability to understand it? Is it in a language and whatnot that the receiver? All four of those tests or gates need to be positive, or in fact, we don't really have effective communication. If you're in your company and you put out the word to everybody, okay, we want you to do this, and they either don't get it or they don't believe it or they, they don't understand it, any number of factors means you didn't really communicate. You think you did because you went through an act. And, and how many times do we experience that in organizations and societies where we're talking, we're talking past each other in some cases, or we're talking in terminology that is that is uh, foreign to the other party. So that's sort of the simple side, but it's hard. It's much harder than people realize. And of course, it's subject to misinformation and disinformation. And I would define misinformation as information I send you that's unintentionally wrong. Disinformation is when, like the tobacco industry did, they shaped the perception of the information just enough to cast doubt. And we see that in social media and everything today in an in a epidemic-like way. The second one that's, that was very interesting to us is narrative. Because narrative is what we say about ourselves. 
And it's interesting because what we say about ourselves usually reflects what we believe or hope to believe about ourselves. We recount a great story in the book from 1957 when then Vice President Richard Nixon is over in Africa for the Liberation Day, Independence Day of the country of Ghana. And so he's walking around talking to people after the ceremony and he sees a a black man and he walks up and says, so how does it feel to be free? And the man looks at him and says, I wouldn't know. I'm from Alabama. (laughs) And, And you step back and you go, whoa. And then you realize that Nixon's question reflected America's narrative as we wanted it to be. We were the beacon of democracy and freedom. And therefore, we were sort of able to now relate to people who are now free like us. And yet the respondent, another American, pointed out that the American narrative was incomplete at best. It wasn't true for every American. And so you have this case where we have these narratives that we believe in. And in in the case of military and historically, we're willing to die for them. And if they are incorrect or they are not credible with people, then they lose their effectiveness and their power. And in fact, they, in many cases, they can boomerang on the organization because we talk about a, a say-do gap, a difference between what we claim the narrative of our organization is and then the reality of how we actually act. And when there's a gap there, you create cynicism. In the, um, in the technology uh, section, Stan, you, you bring up the example of uh, Stanislav Petrov from the Cold War and this nuclear false alarm incident in 1983, which could have been the end of everything. Um, and, you know, you, you talk about sort of, you know, technology has a role here, obviously, in, in, in minimizing risk, but there's uh, you know, a degree where, you know, too much technology, n- not good. And, 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 you know, I've had the honor on the show to, to profile uh, several members of, of our Defense Department that work in areas like artificial intelligence had uh, Dr. David Bar- Colonel Dr. David Barnes on a little while ago. He works at the uh, U.S. Army Artificial Intelligence Task Force, dealing with issues like autonomy. He introduced us to themes like you know on the line, off the line, and so forth. Um, talk a little bit about sort of the, the proper level of intelligence of, of technology and managing risk. Sure, and and let me tell the Petrov story quickly because it it is germane for listeners. Lieutenant Colonel Petrov is running an operations center in the Soviet Union, and they get a computer-generated warning that the United States has fired five Minuteman missiles at the Soviet Union. Now, this is in the 1980s, and they believe that Ronald Reagan, our president, is just bellicose enough to do that, and so tensions were high. But he sees this attack, and his book response is he's supposed to call Moscow and say, okay, we have an attack from the United States, these five missiles. And then presumably the decision would have come from Moscow to immediately conduct counter operations, i.e. begin a nuclear war. But Lieutenant Colonel Petrov is bothered by what he sees. And he's bothered because it's only five missiles. And he assumes that American first strike would be hundreds of missiles. And he also knows his computer system is relatively new. So he's got some doubts. Mm -hmm. And so instead of immediately doing what he's supposed to do and relaying the alert, he sits on it. Meaning in the operations room, he says, don't report. And for minutes pass, and, and people said later, you could hear a pin drop in there because 
he is letting precious time go by because he's got a doubt. Well, his hunch turns out to be accurate. In fact, it's a technological misread. And so there were no Minutemen missiles coming toward the Soviet Union. And Petrov probably prevented a nuclear war, one that none of us knew about in the moment. This really brings to mind is how much should we depend or trust technology? On the one hand, I would say if you're in your car and suddenly your GPS system says, nope, there's problems on ahead, take this back road and go 20 miles out of your way and go around. How many of us go, okay, we'll just do that. And how many of us say, no, I'll stay on the road and, and see. And I would argue it, it gets built up with uh, experience. But the cost is maybe you're on a back road and that's a bad idea, or you get caught in traffic. Nowadays in modern weaponry, weaponry think hypersonic missiles, yep. think things like that. There's not time to do what Petrov did. We had a human in the loop who had the ability to stop. Nowadays, because the speed of incoming ordnance can be so fast, unless you allow an automated response, to first detect and then do a target and then do a counterfire, you can't stop it. It's too, it's too fast to put a human in the loop. And we say, well, we'll never put a human, we'll never have a, a kill chain that doesn't have a human in the loop. And I would argue we already do. Hmm. And we do by necessity, we have no choice. And then you say, all right, well, what if the equipment uh, malfunctions? Or what if it's spoofed by the enemy? Any number of things, suddenly, potentially, huge decisions to include our foreign policy, potentially, are impacted by an algorithm in a machine. And that's a tenuous place to be, but we really don't have another solution yet. We, we just don't have certain things that can happen fast enough with humans to, to slow that. I really, um, I, I enjoyed all the chapters. I really enjoyed the uh, the diversity chapter because um, one, you get into uh, this theme of outliers in the boardroom and you bring up the Theranos example. Hey, you know, maybe as smart as Henry Kissinger and George Schultz and, and General Mattis are, maybe they're not who you should have on the board of a diagnostics company. <laughs> on the other hand, you know, you, you, uh, you talk about the Bay of Pigs and sort of this principle of great minds not thinking alike, but not wanting to say anything, the CIA thinks one thing and the DOD another. Um, talk a little bit about, about some of these concepts of diversity. I think they're very pertinent. Yeah, I would start first is how we think about diversity. Yeah. You know, we tend to think about diversity on a, on a level where we say it's gender or it's race or it's age. And so what we've got to do is get different demographics in the room and we solved our problem. And I remind people, if you get a room of 20 army colonels, in a room. You may have females and minorities and different military branches. At the end of the day, the dominant DNA of those 20 is they are army colonels. They are going to think a lot like army colonels. And we need to understand what real diversity is. So real diversity is not those superficial things. It's a diversity of perspectives. Yeah. We studied the, the Bay of Pigs, which to remind listeners, was a 1961 aborted invasion of Cuba. And what had happened is under President Eisenhower's administration, 
Castro had taken over Cuba and he'd immediately leaned toward the Soviet Union and he started to be viewed as a bad thing and a threat. And so a number of Cuban expatriates or exiles, people who'd left Cuba but wanted to go back, were formed into a military unit trained by and supplied by the United States. And then the plan was to have them land in Cuba and overthrow the Castro government. It was a tenuous plan, not very well put together or conceived. The location of the Bay of Pigs was problematic. So it really would have been dependent upon the use of American air power to be successful. The problem is when they went to look at the plan, it was planned by the CIA and a small secure group. It was shown to the military joint chiefs of staff, but they sort of demurred from providing an opinion. They said, we kind of don't want to touch that. And so they, they refused to provide much uh, opinion on it. And at the end of the day, what happened was a poor plan was poorly executed and failed miserably. And in the after action, a doctor, uh, Irving Janus, did a study. And in the study, he came out with a term that we all know. It's groupthink. Yep. And what he found was when you get groups of people who lack a diversity of perspective, and then there are also a number of group dynamics that, that come into play in a group to sort of people want to be part of the group. They want to get along and all these different things. You create this process that takes people, as the military would say, on the bus Abilene, which is the famous story of this family who all, nobody says or speaks their mind, so they end up going on the bus Abilene when nobody wanted to go there. And so the idea of diversity is really getting those different perspectives in the room, but also with the freedom and responsibility to speak up. I don't know how many boards of directors that historically we've seen. I've been on somewhere we absolutely lack that. And there's this tremendous vulnerability or risk to the organization because the, the role of a body that is supposed to oversee something and give sage judgment basically abrogates its ability to do that because they start to either all think the same or at least all act the same. Now, is that Later on in the book, you get into chapters on on action, uh, you know, timing, how to how to ultimately create the systems to deal uh, with risk. And you know, it's been interesting. I, I've I've done a couple episodes uh, in the recent month or so on this um, this U.S. bipartisan commission for biodefense was sort of a a set of reports put together. You know, obviously we can't get rid of all. Uh, pandemics that are ever going to come our way. But in this particular case, you know, there's a $100 billion budget plan uh, has been sold to Congress yet. But, you know, we could put together quite a few drugs and vaccines and diagnostics and all sorts of other tools that make the next, you know, COVID less nasty uh, when, if it, when it comes along. Uh, but $100 billion is a lot of money. Uh, like anything, I think enough money on the table, we can solve a lot of problems. What are some of the... Um, excuses, let's say, for inaction against some of these major risks that you see when you're out there talking to uh, your various clients? Is it only about money or are there other issues that come to the fore with regard to, eh, maybe we won't invest uh, in this problem today, but we'll wait? Well, there are a range what I see in companies, but we also see them in our society. So for mm -hmm. example, education. 
you know, education has declined in the United States. And yet, because it's not a house on fire, people say, well, it would take a long time to fix that. So people don't want to start on something that takes a long time because that's just not satisfying. It takes a generation to fix certain problems, but you, you've got to begin. So that's one. The second is there is a tendency to just deal with probability say, what's the chance that that's going to happen to my organization or to me individually? And if you can do the probability and convince yourself that it's not real likely, and often that's the way you you uh, articulate it to yourself. People respond differently based upon that. Um, people will accept a tremendous amount of risk just because they're sort of hoping it'll it'll hit somebody else. The one that, that you describe on unwillingness to spend a bunch of money is, is really interesting in terms of pandemics because first, it's not popular to spend a lot of money way in front of something that might not happen, or at least people think might not happen. We know, in fact, the pandemics will happen probabilistically, but, but people say, wow, that's a lot of money. I don't know if we really want to spend all that now. It's even more interesting when a pandemic starts. Because if you study that, as you know, with the exponential growth in a viral pandemic, decisions have got to be made before the need is evident in the population. Meaning a president or a leader is told, okay, we've got this budding infection that's growing. And if we don't get in front of it, it will get in front of us. And yet if the leader says, okay, I'm going to quarantine everybody or do things which are very unpopular you know, stop, move, stop, travel, spend a lot of money, wh whatever it is, the population will be very upset because they don't yet see it. They're not yet seeing body bags or the impact. And so it takes a tremendous amount of courage for a leader to do things before it is self-evident in a population to do that. And we see that in companies. We see it in society with climate change. We, we see things like that. Yeah, we need to deal with climate change, but Let's not deal with it this week because it'll impact the economy. Right. It's true with defense spending. It's true with, you know, getting yourself into good health. You know, someone says, if you've got lousy health habits, well, I yeah, I should do that, but I'll do that later. And of course, you know, often there is no opportunity later to do many of the things that have to be done. Yeah, you, you just mentioned leadership and, you know, of the, 10 dimensions of, of control. This one, you know, you put at the center of all the cogs, you know, purely, you know, very indispensable. Um, you know, you, you, you've been focusing um, with, the, with the consulting firm on creating organizations to manage, mitigate risk. What does it take to make the sort of the best, I mean, is it possible to create that best risk management leader? I mean, obviously, you don't want you don't want somebody that's afraid of everything managing your organization, but at the same time, you don't want a crazy person that's not afraid of anything. Um, is it possible to create the best leader, and what are, what are the best qualities of a risk managing leader? Yeah, I I think that it's always a bit situationally dependent because in a certain moment you might need a certain kind of leadership, very strong, very courageous, very decisive, tells everybody, shut up, we're gonna go this way. We've seen that in the movies and, and there are moments when that's right. But more often the moment is one where the, the best leader is actually creating in the organization the capacity to deal with things. And so 
there is a need for a certain amount of effective communication by a senior leader giving broad direction. Franklin Roosevelt at the beginning of his first term as he in the depths of the depression is giving a beacon or clarity. But at the same time, what you really have to do as a leader is build in the organization the capacity for different parts of it to do things. So for example, a very centralized autocratic system that may be uh, comforting to people because somebody's got their hand on the, the helm. It's almost impossible in today's complex environment for that person to be so well informed that they can make micro decisions that are appropriate through the organization. What they've really got to do is create an environment where the organization understands the general narrative and direction. The leader has built things like communication, has built processes, has maybe tweaked the structure, has built a culture where people will take action when action is required, as opposed to simply reporting it up and say, somebody up top ought to do something. Well, the reality is you've got to unlock in the organization the ability to adapt as required, to act as required, to adjust as they go. That takes a fair amount of self-confidence on the part of a leader mm -hmm. because you can't hold the reins so tight uh, that you have absolute control because you just cannot reach enough things and be all-knowing. And so instead, what you've got to do is give more autonomy but connected by effective communication and a single-minded uh, understanding of what the organization's trying to do, what the, the desired outcome actually is. And, and related to this point, I, I was just reading a, an interview you gave um, to CNBC a couple of weeks ago, and, and, and there you were talking about, you know, best leaders also listen to and learn from younger people, less experienced people. Say a few words about that, if you would. Yeah, I mean, when I got to be a senior commander in Afghanistan, you know, you talked in the introduction, I had 150,000 people and I was, you know, the four star. Okay, great. Good for me. And I come up with these strategies and plans in Kabul and we put them out through the country. And I would go travel around and you'd go to some very remote village or or a valley where a young lieutenant or sergeant is working. And surprise, surprise, our strategy isn't exactly perfect for the conditions on the ground there. And the reality is, you know, you come down to talk to them and you say, if you ask the question, okay, sergeant, how's my strategy? And they'll go, it's great, sir, because that's what they think you want to hear and they're trying to be polite. Instead, what I started doing was asking them, I said, all right, if I told you, you can't go home until we win, what would you do differently? And, you know, they'd giggle a little bit and they'd go, wow, can he really do that to me? And they weren't sure. Maybe I could. And then they would give these wonderful answers because they say, hey, the problem here is really this. And the only solution here is really this. And this is understanding that, <clears throat> okay, I had 25 more years in service than that sergeant or that lieutenant. 25 more years of experience, but they're close to the problem and they're smart people and they're not getting bombarded with 8,000 different problems a day. They're focused on that one. And so the reality is they probably understand that problem better than I ever will. They're probably, or 
They're at least as smart as me, naturally, and they're probably smarter. So they also think about it really well. And so the reality is <clears throat> learning from people in the organization is bowing to their expertise. They are the experts in the thing that they are dealing with. And the idea that the senior person is the expert by the fact that they are senior or older or more powerful is just incorrect. Most of your understanding of a problem exists down close to the problem. And so what you've got to do is have enough humility to accept that and accept that I'm going to find the solutions to the problem closest to the problem from the people who know the problem. And my challenge is to listen to them, to give them the ability to solve those problems, give them the resources and the confidence and all the different things like that, and allow them to make us better than the brains of one person or anything like that. And it, it takes a little getting used to, because as I, as I rose in seniority, the first thing you do, you, you think, if I don't have the answer to their problem, I must not be doing my job. There must be some problem with me. And you have to get over that. And you have to accept there's a lot of things I don't know, never will know. Um, but, but if I can know enough to let people do their job, then maybe we can be successful together. Mm -hmm. Excellent points. Steve, you say a couple of words about um, service year alliance. I know this is something you're extremely passionate about uh, in addition to, to, to everything yeah. else you're involved in, but please, please talk about that. Well, th thanks for asking, because this one I think is huge. Yeah. And I would argue that <clears throat> what has happened in our country and in some other countries as well <clears throat> is the idea of citizenship has diminished. You know, there was a time when we thought of America as a covenant. And what I mean is America wasn't put on the globe by God who said, that is the United States of America and thus shall it be. No, it was a bunch of people who banded together and basically made an agreement to make a nation. And there were a lot of compromises in that process. And those compromises, some were political, big ones, which we still with it today. But another is, I will do my part of the society. I will vote, participate in government. I will do common defense when necessary. I will abide by laws. I will do a number of things because being part of this covenant is important enough to me that I'll do that. And I think what's happened is over generations, we have allowed that to sort of erode until you say, well, if I pay my taxes and if I vote and you know, almost a third of them or more than a third of Americans don't bother to vote, then I'm doing my part. And most of us got our citizenship just by accident of birth. We didn't right. do anything for it. We get to be Americans. But, but I think that there are not inalienable rights only. I think there are inalienable responsibilities as well. And those responsibilities are not just if I get drafted or paying my taxes. They are participating in society. They are taking care of other citizens. They are being a part of what makes this thing work. And so I think that where do we learn that? You know, some generations learned it. If you think of the age on the, the frontiers where people had to band together to defend or to raise a barn or to do things, it was forced. Nowadays, we don't have many forcing functions for that. 
And most Americans don't get an opportunity to do something for the common good because they're never asked. If we have a second world war, we have huge numbers go in the service. That's a very uh, obvious case. But what about in other cases? We just don't. And and where do you learn that responsibility? I'd argue not in civics class. You learn it through experience. And so my belief, along with many other people, is that the way we give rising generations opportunity to learn that values through experience. And so give every young American the opportunity to do a year of full-time national service. It can be in healthcare, it can be in conservation, it can be in teaching, but for a year they do something and they're paid for it because you don't want it to be limited only to people whose families can support them. But you want everybody to do something in an area that may be hard, it may be inconvenient, it may be tiring, but it shapes their their belief in what their responsibility is. And it has them do it with other Americans who probably aren't from their zip code. You know, we tend to be kind of truncated and and uh, hermetically sealed in our income or religion yeah. or, or zip code. Force them to do that. And I think that <clears throat> people walk away from that with a different view of what it is to be a citizen, what their responsibility is, how they feel about other citizens. And one of the great things about the military is you throw all these people in from different parts of the country, different backgrounds, and you come away with a lot more empathy for people that otherwise were those people. And suddenly they start to be, yeah, but they're, you know, we're all Americans and we need a forcing function. So I think that national service for young Americans is one that that could do more than anything else that I can think of to change us as a nation. I think much of our political division right now is the fact that we don't interact enough. And I think this interaction at a young level could do an awful lot to lessen that in the future. Outstanding, really outstanding. Um, Stan, what, what, one last thing um, I just have to ask about, because you know, um, going back to the book for a moment, you, um, you bring up uh, in, in examples, two of my favorite movies, uh, both from 1964. Uh, you, you talk about the uh, uh, failsafe, the uh, the Cold War thriller starring Henry Fonda as the president, and then uh, of course Doctor Strangelove, uh, where the, the Cold War comedy where Peter Sellers is is playing the president as well as other characters. And I just have to ask, while I have you, sorry about this, but um, have you ever been in the Pentagon? Uh, with the president or, or yourself maybe, and you had to tell people that they couldn't fight in the war room. <laughs> no, although I have been in meetings where <clears throat> I sat there and I said, this should be a movie. This is absurd. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and you walk out and you kind of shake your head and said, if people had heard the conversation I just heard, they'd be horrified. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, Stan, I mean, this is a really great time. I I I, I so appreciate you know your perspective on on all these items, uh, and, and it's just really has been such an honor to talk to you and hear your your thoughts and perspectives on these matters, uh, and, and really wishing you the best on, on all these things you're involved in currently. Um, for for everybody again that uh, it has 
you know, will be listening to this particular episode of our show uh, across the various podcast networks or, or watching on our YouTube channel. Again, you've been listening to General Stan McChrystal, uh, founder and chief executive officer of the McChrystal Group, uh, also chair of the board of Service Year Alliance. Uh, of course, pick up a copy of Risk, a user's guide, pick up a copy of all his uh, amazing books. Um, Stan, I, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to come talk to us and educate us on these topics for a little while. Obviously, thank you for everything you've been doing and obviously your, your long service to the United States. And as we like to say on this show, you know, thanks for having created a better tomorrow for many people via everything that you've done and continue to do. It's a really inspiring story and I really appreciate you sharing it with us. Ira, thank you. It's been an honor. Good seeing you.